Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. So, how secure is the vote? It's a topic, obviously, that's been on many people's mind recently, pro and con. People both left and right rushing to pass new voting rights laws. But do these laws only help certain candidates or certain political parties? Or do the rules actually do absolutely nothing? Do they prevent fraud? Do they change outcomes? We've got to get past the headlines on all of this. Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? They begin. Very pleased to be joined today by Sarah Isker, a great piece in Politico. Uh, so give us a little perspective here. Uh, we've heard a lot about voting rights and voting restrictions and all of those things. Give us a, kind of the real lay of the land. What's uh, what's happening there? Well, I was sort of hearing what everyone else heard, right? The president gave a speech saying that 19 states had passed new voting restrictions since 2020, that this was Jim Crow 2.0. It was part of the Republican talking point that the election had been stolen in 2020 from President Trump, which... You know, as someone who's worked in a bunch of presidential elections, I can tell you is not the case. (laughs) So even so, I was like, you know, I should go read these 19 laws, kind of part of my job. And I was shocked when I went and read them. First of all, of the 19, four of those states are controlled by Democrats. So right off the bat, I felt like the president's speech was a little misleading. But then even getting into a state like Georgia. So Georgia now has over two weeks, 17 days of early voting from 9 to 5 p.m. But if you look at a state like New York, they only have nine days of early voting, but their early voting is 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Massachusetts has 11 days of early voting, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., same as Georgia. Then you start realizing that the issue here is not any single regulation, but overall, how easy is it to vote? What is it compared to other states? And what is it compared to what it was before 2020? And then... We have multiple academic studies that show that none of these laws have made much of a difference, which is also sort of a fun fact. Things like voter ID, drive-through voting, all of those things didn't affect turnout in 2020 and certainly didn't affect the margin for Democrats in 2020. So Republicans who think that making it harder to vote will somehow help them, no evidence for that. Democrats who think making it easier to vote helps them, not much evidence for that either. Uh, this is this is my favorite because it's the ultimate think again because because you have so many who think oh yeah well if we do this then that's good for us and for our party so we'll win and the others are saying well no if we do it this way it's better for us so we'll win uh, and you're saying 
everybody's everybody's the same in the end. In fact, if you go look, you know, 2020 had all of these pandemic era voting laws that made it very, very easy to vote. No, uh, no excuse absentee voting, voting by mail, drive through voting, drop boxes, you know, all the things that Democrats thought would really help them. And sure, Joe Biden won. But look down ballot. Republicans did much, much better than they were supposed to do. Far more House seats that they won than, you know, Democrats were supposed to win the House, win a lot more House seats. And Republicans, in fact, cut into the Democrats' margin. Same on the Senate side. And in fact, in Georgia, President Biden won at the top of the Georgia ticket. But when you look at the November results for the Senate races, 80,000 more people voted for the Republican for the Senate. And in fact, 28,000 Georgians simply didn't vote for president and voted for other races down ballot. So what that tells me is the voting laws didn't so much matter as the people who they were voting for. Wow. And so is this really just uh, more uh, politics on politics uh, that we're, you know, the president obviously is is talking about something he thinks is a, is a winning political argument in terms of these restrictive new laws or whatever they might be? Uh, or is there something that needs to be looked at? Or how should we look at this in terms of kind of these state-by-state laws as, as you looked at these 19 that uh, have been enacted? So there's a few answers to that. One, of course, there was no statewide voter fraud of the kind that Republicans uh, say that they're passing these laws for. Now, some Republicans will say, well, no, it's not that the election was stolen It was that, you know, it was undermined voters' confidence in elections. And so we need to, you know, people will actually show up to vote more the more they have confidence that their vote is actually being counted and that it's fair. There's just no real data or evidence to support any of those claims. On the flip side, as I've said, like this is Jim Crow 2.0, I find particularly insulting given what Jim Crow actually 1.0 was. But we have the answer to how to make voting both more fair more secure, more open. And we've had it since 2005. Jimmy Carter, former Democratic president, voting rights activist, and James Baker, the former Republican secretary of state, got together, came up with 87 recommendations for states to pass or the federal government to pass. Some states actually have. But when we think about the voting law that Democrats have proposed uh, on the House side that President Biden has been um, touting, It only takes the ones that they like from that list, but it doesn't work by itself. And I think Utah is such a great example of despite what people think about, for instance, all male voting states, that somehow that would lead to like democratic sweeps of every race. It's just not true. So both sides need to step back and actually just ask what is sort of the best way to balance the security of voting with the ease of voting and I don't know. I think that Jimmy Carter and James Baker showed the way on that. Yeah, I, and I love that, that, uh, that those two came together. And uh, it, it has definitely been a lot of cherry-picking uh, from both sides in terms of which of those recommendations they, they actually improve. And one of the things that I'm, I'm most worried about, and I'd love your perspective on this, Sarah, uh, I, I'm most worried that you have uh, politicians on both the right and the left uh, who are already talking in terms of if you don't win the next election, it's because X has happened. It's because it's been rigged or has been cheated or stolen or it's not legitimate. Uh, how do you see that playing out and, and uh, what do we do to course correct in that space? I think it's incredibly dangerous. I've been out there saying as someone like my job in multiple presidential elections was to try to figure out how one could steal a statewide election. I've written on it extensively. I've tried to walk through with people the various ways they think you might be able to steal an election and why those won't work. 
um, in reality. It's actually very helpful that our elections are so localized. Even the voting machines are incredibly localized. It can seem chaotic. It can seem annoying to people. But it's part of the way you can be really confident that it would be hard to change, for instance, 20,000 ballots in a state, which would have been um, you know, necessary in the last election to move any of those states. But I find this idea that, you know, when Stacey Abrams lost in Georgia, she never still hasn't conceded that she lost the governor's race. She said it was stolen from her. And I believe that was a 80,000 yeah. vote margin. And obviously, President Trump, far more dangerous when a sitting U.S. president says an election was stolen from him, now a former president. But yeah, this idea that you don't have to ever acknowledge that maybe your message didn't work, maybe your candidate wasn't good, maybe voters simply didn't believe you, you lacked credibility, they didn't trust you. But instead, you can just say, no, no, we don't have to change anything. We don't change our message. We don't have to change our candidate. We don't have to appeal to different voters because actually everyone voted for us. It was just stolen. I mean, that is the way to end self-government. Yes, yeah, and undermining that confidence and that credibility. We always say if you're complaining about the rules or the referees, it's because you are losing and you need to focus on getting your own act together. Uh, last question for you, Sarah, before I let you go. Uh, you mentioned uh, just the feature, not flaw, of having these super local control uh, of the elections. Those who say, well, we just need to do all this at the federal level, uh, just explain that in terms of why it would be easier for someone to tamper with something that's command and control central uh, as opposed to the way it's currently dispersed uh, all the way down to these local uh, districts. Sure. So, for instance, voting machines differ from precinct to precinct sometimes. Uh, and certainly state to state, those are contracts done by local governments. And that's good. We don't want all one voting machine using all the same software, for instance. But let's take it from the other direction. If you wanted a voting machine to change the vote count, there's a few problems with that. One, the voting machines are never hooked up to the Internet. So you'd need to either go to the main storage facility where they're kept and upload that program to every single one in that storage facility. Good luck getting in there. And by the way, the FBI monitors all this. And the problem, well, we'll get to what, one of the problems with doing it at the main storage facility is that they run tests every time you take the machines and move them somewhere. So they'll run, you know, 15 ballots and make sure that it comes out correct. Okay, so you can't do it at the main facility because of the testing. What about if you do it at the local precinct level where they are? Well, now you've got to drive around to all of these precincts where these machines are, and you've got to do it after the test has been administered, which is usually administered every morning, every night, sometimes in the afternoon. And again, that's going to depend on the location. So you're going to have to know the local rules, the local election officials. And at some point, what I'm very comforted by is the fact that conspiracies are very, very hard if you're involving more than well, really one person, but let's say more than three people. And so whether it's steaming open absentee ballots, someone claims that they had done this for about 100 ballots and they said they could do, you know, one ballot every seven minutes, I think. I worked it out uh, even with like him and his two buddies working 12 hours a day for a week before the election. It would be enough to change a city council race. Maybe. It would not be enough to change a congressional race. And so there's just so much about having these local elections, local officials keep the tallies, send those into the county board and send them into the state so that when they show up on the state website that you and I see, those local officials can see it too and say, but yeah. that's not the number I sent in. Yeah. 
Great insight as always, uh, Sarah Isco is a uh, staff writer for the Dispatch, our friends over there, and is a contributing editor for ABC News. Great piece in Politico, uh, and a lot of reasons for us to have confidence and trust in that process. Not perfect, uh, but again, the more we keep that local, uh, the more confidence we should actually have in that. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, again, great conversation and important conversation. And we can never let our political parties convince us that just because they lost a particular race, it was because something was rigged. Uh, there's a lot of things in this system that make it work uh, and should give us great confidence in it. And we shouldn't buy into the bailout uh, of just saying it was stolen, whether you're left, right, or center. With Lloyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.